Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. How are you doing today? I hope you've had a great weekend. Looking forward to spending time with you today. And if you uh, know what Monday is like around here, it's uh, always exciting. And I love starting my show with my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa, uh, Patrick Albanese, who I believe is moving up in competency and charisma. Patrick, welcome. Uh, Simultaneously, by the way. (laughs) Simultaneously. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, I'm, I recently discovered that I'm asymmetrical on both sides. Right. So that was that was a new development for me. <laughs> I'll have to think about but, that one. But, but, yeah. By the way, just just minutes before, uh, you know, sometimes you and I exchange because, uh, unbeknownst to the uh, to the average listener, not, none of this is uh, as prepared as it sounds, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you know, sometimes we'll send things back and forth saying, oh, this is something I just came across and maybe we could talk about it. And you sent me one of those, I'm not crying, you're crying videos. <laughs> <laughs> you know the kind? Oh, yeah. You know, like a little just, oh, my, is there a dust? Is there dust in the air? And you said, oh, hey, here's something, you know, that's kind of cute. Didn't know if you wanted to talk about it or not. And I said, oh, what is this? It's a kid playing the piano. What are you crying? What, what are you, chopping onions? Or you're watching the video I sent? Yeah, I was chopping onions uh, during a dust storm, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very little yeah. sweet story. Uh, Steve Hartman uh, from CBS News interviewed a gentleman who uh, helped a family and this uh, 11-year-old boy uh, named Jude Kofi. Uh, his family's from Ghana, and this kid is a uh, has a little autism, but boy, can he, unbeknownst to his parents, sat down at a keyboard and played piano. And the piano tuner who recognized and heard the boy play said, he is Mozart level. Mozart level. His talent comes from beyond. That's what he said. Uh, he's... He he stumbles upon a keyboard in the basement that well I mean they moved here and I maybe dad just never unpacked it and yeah I just love that part of the story that says he wakes up one day and says look listen to that music that's amazing music where is that coming from <laughs> and he goes down to the basement and his eleven year old son has found a keyboard that dad had just not unpacked and had never seen a keyboard in his life and is playing it's un, it's amazing music. And uh, different genres. I so uh, and then he so you go okay okay that that'll pull out a couple of tears. But then it was the piano tuner guy. He said, "Well, these people they don't have money. Who's going to make sure that this kid you know gets to explore his passion?" So the guy takes his inheritance from his father and spends fifteen thousand dollars. So now you're crying, right? Yeah. The, the, the old piano tuner guy who spent dad's money to buy this strange kid that he had never heard of a piano. And he said, I'll, I'll be here every month to tune it up for the rest of my life. And, uh, and we'll get you some lessons too. And, and here's this, this family that doesn't have much raising kids of their own. And they say, well, we've got this kid who has special needs and all of a sudden an angel appears and all this magic happens. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, folks, 
you know, you stick with your Darwin evolution thing. This is <laughs> pure, pure miracle stuff. Mm-hmm. It was just beautiful. And I wanted to thank you for sending it to me and a bill for a box of Kleenex. <laughs> so Yeah, it's a very tender story and I, I enjoyed it. I've passed it to a couple people and I was just uh, reminded of uh, the power of a, a person's generous heart. When somebody sees something and acts upon it, you know, he might have thought, boy, this kid needs a better piano or a piano versus an mm-hmm. elect- electronic keyboard he has in his basement. And he pulled out all the stops and showed up, had a $15,000 piano delivered. Um, and yeah. the guy is in tears saying, I am so thrilled to be a part of this. And we're family now. Here's this little family from uh, Ghana. Yeah. Yeah, Ghana. And they go, here, here is a, two families now have come together and have celebrated something quite remarkable. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, this kid is absolutely charming. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. again, uh, when when needs are are announced or recognized, it's amazing when people step up and say, I want to help. And we saw that happen uh, this uh, holiday season here at Faith Radio. We had some amazing, amazing uh, gift givers show up and do some amazing things. It was pretty spectacular. Yeah, it always is. It's it's it uh, it it amazes me every single time. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's already what is yeah. it? The ninth of January already. H- have you yeah. found that you've developed any new patterns or habits? And have you stuck with them, or is that a moot point because you didn't try to do anything different? Well, uh, <laughs> I tried to up my up my salt intake, and okay. so I've succeeded <laughs> at that. <laughs> What's next, sugar? Uh, yeah. Yeah, sugar's next. Sugar's next. I, I need to eliminate the sugar. You, you know, I, I, I have. I didn't set a ton of goals for myself, but of course, I'm a regular gym goer, and so I remember showing at the showing up at the gym on January second. Um, I might have been. I might have even. I went January. Yeah, January second. So that was a Monday, and I thought, well, here we go. Be a lot of unfamiliar faces. And it'll be all these people, and I'm here to cheer you on and say you stick with it. And uh, if you do, one day you'll be as old as me <laughs> in here. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was empty. And I thought, oh, no, did nobody make this? Did everybody say, you know, I'm not going to make that resolution this no, year? No, <laughs> I've got a counter to that. I talked to the manager at my gym, and I said, so are you expecting a, a flood of people showing up at the first of the year? He goes, Oh, no, no, they, they sign up at the first of the year, but they don't show up until nearly the end of the month. Well, they have started showing up, and uh, I'm doing my best to still cheer them on while also saying, get off my bench. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't, you may not understand that most of this equipment belongs to me just by right. just by default because I'm usually the only one here. But uh yeah, so they they're starting to to show up the parking lots full and uh I I applaud it and I was trying to remember it was interesting. I I joined my first gym uh, right after my 18th birthday. You had to be 18 to be able to go. Prior to that, I could go to the YMCA with my mother who taught swimming lessons. And they had a little gym down in the basement which was it was a dungeon. You know, it you know had the light bulb hanging from the socket that you had to tap every now and then <laughs> to to find your way around a layer of dust because these rusty plates hadn't been lifted much, but it was a gym. And so uh, when I turned eighteen, um, I joined a, a, a Nautilus with my two brothers, 
and we would go at six o'clock in the morning when they opened. Uh, and I, so I set that habit at a, at a very early age now, because my birthday is just a couple of days before new year's, you could say, well, was that a new year's resolution? And it was not, it was just something I wanted to do with my brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, well, if, Fun you know, I, I, yeah, even at the age of, of 18, I still looked up to my older brother saying, if you guys can get up at five o'clock in the morning and be at the gym by six, I can do it. I like that. I like and it. And so I did. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Patrick Albanese. Uh, do you finish books? Well, uh, some. <laughs> <laughs> but not not too many. Oh, interesting. Why not? Not too many. Do you go to the last page and well, read just to see how it ended? Uh, you know, if you've lost me in the middle, I'm not that interested in your ending. Okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's right. like, it's like, how are you going to, you know, it's, it's not like you're going to do a Tom Brady fourth quarter <laughs> overtime comeback and save this book if, if you've lost me. So uh, part of it could be just disinterest. A thing I have found, and this is just a general rule, it doesn't apply to all books. Because I remember when I was trying to read classics like some of the Dickens books when I was younger, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. Surprised that I did. I said, I just read A Tale of Two Cities, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I can tell you how it begins and ends. The middle part, a little tough. But um, I find that books, they seem to just fluff them out so much anymore in the middle. It's like somebody said, well, this book needs to be 300 pages. Who Was it the guy that wrote The One Minute Manager that said, hey, you know, 60 pages. That ought to cover everything I got to talk about. And I was kind of hoping that more books, not just that I wanted them to be short, but it's why are you adding all this stuff in the middle that doesn't seem to, it's it's like, okay, here's another testimonial. Here's a, you know, let me introduce you to Tony Thompson. Tony didn't believe in himself. After he (laughs) took my course, he believed in himself Mm -hmm. and turned it's like, okay, I've heard 42 Tony Thompson stories. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't Can know who just, Tony Thompson is, but I love where I, you're going with this. I love it. If you could just cut to the chase where, how did Tony Thompson turn his life around? Not, I don't need this. It's like, hey, Tony Thompson turned his life around. <laughs> Once I reveal my secret to you on page 187. <laughs> uh, do you finish books? Well, I'm feeling convicted about that because often I don't, but I want to. And I was uh, watching a video the, the other week about uh, being a better reader. And this author said that if you sit down with a pencil and a notebook, it will help you stay focused. And his admonition was to read at least one page a day of a book. He said, now think about it, 180 days from now, you'll have read 180 pages of a book. And there might be some notes that you can go back and look at, and that will help you understand the book better and enjoy the book more. Yeah. Now, as far as today goes, I haven't picked my page yet or my book, and I've got college football tonight, so it may not happen. Well, let's just that say it's on my radar. Happen. It's on your radar. And, mm-hmm. you know, page 180 is right away, right <laughs> about where Timmy Thompson discovers the secret. Uh, I like that system. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. I've been getting into the older I get, the more I start to realize I've made many mistakes, <laughs> you know. But there were many things that I could have uh, tackled had I bit off smaller pieces. Yes. Uh, you, you know, you, you pick up the banjo and you say, well, I would like to play, uh, foggy mountain breakdown, just like Earl Scruggs did, uh, at the speed that he played it at. It took him a lifetime to get there. And we set an expectation and somebody said to me, uh, why don't you just learn the first couple of notes? And I like this one page system because you'll probably end up reading two or three thinking right. you overindulged. Mm-hmm. 
But if you sit down and look at one page and read it with a notebook out and a pen, you might pick up a lot more. You might enjoy the book more, and you might, in the long run, develop a habit which, over time, will accumulate into something meaningful. Well, have you, uh, I'm sure listeners have had this happen, so this has had, have, this has probably happened to everybody, where, you know, you set out to do something, and uh, let's say somebody said, you know, uh, if you want to become proficient in whatever it is, uh, you know, uh, juggling, that's probably going to take 10 years. And so you say, oh, it's a little too rich for my blood. And then 10 years later, you're kind of looking over your life and you're saying, you know, today would have been the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me take a break. And I'm curious, Patrick and I both want to know, do you finish books? Yes or no? Just curious. 877-933-2484-877-933-2484. We'll gather the data and we'll figure out if people finish books or not. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. Oh, that walk-up music belongs to Patrick Albanese, my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa and the prestigious town of West Des Moines. So, Patrick, some of the early uh, entries coming in is, uh, do I finish a book? Sometimes. And someone else said, I finish books even when it's painful. I can think of only two books I decided not to finish. So that's impressive. Uh, it, that's impressive. Yeah. Uh, in addition, uh, an addendum to this question would be: everybody has a bookshelf somewhere, and probably boxes of books. And then, uh, you know, chances are there's a couple of books that fell off the nightstand and slid under the bed, and you forgot about those. Mm-hmm. But if you look at your bookshelf, what percentage of the books up there would you say you finished? When I, look, cover. when I look at my bookshelf, I would say a little above 50%. Really? Yeah, I'd say a little above 50. That's that's really impressive, honestly, because I, I don't know if I could say 5% I have, anymore. I have, I'm not like, oh, that one. I have five books on my bookshelf. Oh, well, that'll do it. <laughs> so how do you completely finish two and a half books? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the math isn't working too well for me. Uh, no, no but, I have, yeah, I have a bunch of magic books up there, so I would never read a magic book no. cover to cover. I'd say there's the one trick I want to learn. I'll yeah. just, you know, yes, read I, that one. Yes, I finished books, but it might have something to do with the fact that I read a few of the last pages before I go to the beginning. So that's kind of an interesting approach. They're going to kind of see how the story ends and then uh, go, go to the beginning. I think a lot of times when you share a story, if you put in a little tease as to how the story ends, it's a lot easier to listen to. It, sure. I mean, if I said to you, hey... It works for the movies, yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. if I say, hey, I was, uh, I was in a car accident today. Hey, everything's good. And there's, you know, I didn't get hurt. No one else got hurt. Then you go, oh, what a relief. Now you're probably more willing to listen to the story. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you want the details, uh, but uh, you know, if you didn't get hurt, you go, well, you've only got three minutes, so <laughs> get this story going. No, that's uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I'm sure you've had people do this. I I won't do this one. This isn't one I don't do. Where you call and you say, "Hey, hey, first thing, I'm okay." What? Okay. What happened? <laughs> yeah. All right. Here, here's another comment. I've been a prolific reader all my life. I will quit reading a book that is poorly written, boring, or offensive. Life's too short for bad books. I love that. I do love that. Yeah. See, maybe I have, you know, it's a, my wife will read, she reads at least one book a week and sometimes two, uh, just always reading, always reading. And uh, she's got the system where she goes to the used bookstore, buys books at a discount, and then she brings them back a week later and says, I'll sell these back to you. She loses money on the deal, but it's still cheaper in in the long run uh, at the rate she goes through books. And, uh, she just loves reading fiction books. She likes crime books. She likes mysteries. And, uh, you know, so of course I've got, you know, a technical manual on the nightstand that I can't seem to get past the introduction. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. once you're finished with this book, you'll be able to edit video. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. And she says, why don't you read, you know, something like this that kind of just dra- draws you right in. So I'm not interested in that. And I think it's because I'm afraid of it getting all drawn in and then, <laughs> I'll be the kind of person that starts canceling stuff saying, I, you know, I can't make it to, I can't come to work today. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, Betty's getting married today. I know the, <laughs> I know there was a big wedding and there's $200 a plate. I just don't think I'm going to be there because I'm on chapter 12. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to keep going. Well, have you ever had one of those? You can't put it down. Um, not very often, not very often. Okay. You know, I, I don't, um, I was talking to Ryan during the break and, and Ryan says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of mixed, you know, finish some, maybe, maybe I don't start a lot of them, you know? So I think, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of that. Like I do start books half I will finish, but I don't, I don't choose a lot of books to read except God's word. I love opening my Bible and I never, ever tire of that. And you'll never finish it because no, as soon not. as you get to the end, you'll go right back to the beginning and the new stuff will be there that you didn't notice the first time around or right. the last time around. Right. Yeah. I, I have yet to understand this particular phenomenon when it comes to books and it helps now that things are more on the electronic spectrum. So you can just get a digital book instead of letting them pile up on the nightstand. I couldn't see my alarm clock. I know a lot of people have had that. I have no idea what time it is until the <laughs> leaning tower of books goes down. But you know, ordering a book and, and then when Amazon came along and you'd say, oh, I've got to wait a couple of days. Just, I, I need this book. I need it right now, right now. And then it finally arrives. You go, ah, it's here. And you don't crack it open for two years. <laughs> <laughs> but you got it when you want to. When you want to open it and read it, you have it. It's ready. Yeah. But I, I haven't figured out what is happening on on that level with me where it says I absolutely must have this and I must have it as quickly as possible. If I have to pay extra, I will pay extra because mm-hmm. th- this is a life-changing book that absolutely I need to start reading this <laughs> immediately. Yeah. So if you can get it, to, if you can fly it here by drone and it gets here tonight, you will have, you will have changed a life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have three of those mm-hmm. such books <laughs> still in the shrink wrap, <laughs> of course. A very uh, smart and witty listener, Rosella, said, when, when, when would I stop listening to Faith Radio so I could read a book? 
I liked Patrick's comment about getting bogged down in the middle, and I loved the comment, life is too short for bad books. Some books I finish, most I lose interest. Yeah, I do tend to lose interest. And I don't know if that's the bogging down in the middle where it's okay. I get it. You know, you're, uh, I had to listen to recently um, somebody recording uh, the audio version of their book. I was working in a place where we were processing the audio for a book that was already too long to begin with. And then it turned into 18 hours of recording and editing. So I heard this book through and through and I thought this could have been a 60 page book. Mm. It could have been 60 pages, but the, the publisher said, no, it's gotta be big and beefy. Mm -hmm. Cause I asked, I said, wow, this is a 375 pages. That's a, a lot of Pete the cat, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Couple questions. So I, I, couple yeah. questions for yeah. you in our remaining three minutes, uh, just so we complete the loop. Last week we talked about your wife suggesting nothing for her birthday. Don't get me anything, and that you went ahead and uh, and defied her. How did it work out? Uh, it worked out perfectly. It's swimmingly, swimmingly. We don't <laughs> okay. use that phrase enough. All right, elaborate, way, please. We win. We went to, well, uh, so I bought the certificate. I had already had it ready to go. I just, you know, had to fill in the spot, the two spot. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want this, I can give this to somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, so got her the massage package, the spa package. And uh, then you know, we went to dinner and she said, you know, I'd like the kids to go with us. I, I love this idea. And we went to this uh, favorite Italian restaurant that we go to where... I easily, I ate my week load of calories uh, before dessert. Nice. And then week number two on the dessert, and she was so happy that I ignored her supposed desire. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the advice, everybody. I, I mean, I kind of knew mm -hmm. that you know you you can't not do that. Yeah. But there's the, the part of me that says, well, I mean, I wouldn't mind saving the money. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> All right, one but, last question. Uh, I know they talk about the 12 days of Christmas, which, by the way, start at Christmas. And so now we're creeping up past those 12 days. Have you taken the Christmas decorations down at the, at the Albany's house? Uh, half of them were down Christmas night. Wow. And the remainder were down the next day, with the exception of the outdoor lighting, uh, which had to wait a couple of days for the weather to clear. And then I, uh, took, I took care of all of the outdoor stuff. So the decorations come down on Christmas night? Isn't that... Isn't that a little abrupt. My, my wife, when she's done, she's done. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she she is night. She, but she says, well, okay, are the package is all open. Do we have anything left? Let's go. Let's uh, we got into the habit of doing that because I would often have to hit the road on the 26th and I would take the family with okay. me to go for, for some performing jobs and we didn't want to come back to Christmas. Okay. Well, but, that's fair. Yeah. Enough. We, we take it down pretty quickly. Yeah. All right, my friend, have a great rest of the week, and I will talk to you again soon. Thanks. Talk you to bet. you then. Patrick Albanese has been my guest and friend to get the week started. We're taking a little break, and then the Monday afternoon mix. Pastor David Miles is already in the green room. As a matter of fact, he's coming in the studio right now. We'll be right back. Dancing in the night From the bottom of her heart What's up with her? 
It is time for the Monday afternoon mix, and I'm awfully glad that Pastor David Miles is across the studio from me. Rosie yes. B is out today, so Ryan is running the show, and he's more than welcome to jump in at any time if he chooses to do so. But we've got a special guest today, David Miles. Why don't you introduce our special guest? Yes, super, super excited and blessed to have Brooke Hempso of the Pinkston Group, which is part of the Barter Group, out of a sunny Atlanta, Georgia, which is not enjoying the snowbanks that we have up here, uh, but the Peachtree <laughs> State. And, uh, you know, um, she's going to be with us today sharing just a lot of experience and love for the church. Um, actually, Bill, I had an opportunity just yesterday uh, to be in sunny Atlanta with Brooke and her husband, Christian, and their wonderful kids, Morgan uh, and Gabriel, and their wonderful dog, Cody. Uh, and it was a really rich uh, time. I walked away. My spirit was just filled and blessed um, by this family's love of the gospel, love of Jesus, and just um, the ways that God is using them both here uh, locally in the United States and globally. Brooke, welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for that very kind intro. <laughs> it, was, it was a very nice intro. David's yeah. like a real pro here. So uh, <laughs> yeah. do tell us about the Pinkston Group, which is I know is a division of Barna. Sure. Um, yeah, well, we're, we're partners. So I actually was at Barna Group for about eight years doing market research on the church. And, um, you know, Barna studies all sorts of topics at the intersection of faith and culture. So I was really privileged to be able to do research on what was current and important now in our, our faith walk um, for many years. And Pinkston is the communications partner of Barna. And um, I have uh, been working with some of our, our nonprofit clients and ministries to be able to be more intentional about their communications um, now in, in a new role this year. Awesome. I've, I've had George on the show a number of times, who's absolutely oh. delightful. Um, so I, I love what, the kind of work he does, and I would, I would just enjoy you discussing the Beyond Diversity study. What is that, and yes. what did you learn? Oh, yes. Um, that was a almost three-year project. <laughs> we started doing some early research in 2018, um, really did most of our survey research in 2019 and 2020, and it was very interesting. It's a topic that Barna had been kind of tracking on and off over time um, around how does the church deal with issues of diversity? You know, we're seeing more multi-ethnic churches. Um, how is that going? And what are people's perspectives on various topics to do with race and justice and related issues? And so we decided to do this deep dive study. We were able to partner with Michael Emerson, who wrote the book um, Divided by Faith, along with Christian Smith, uh, about a little over 20 years ago. And he um, was approved to, to kind of redo that study. So we got to work with them on having another look at race and the church. And... It was so fascinating to be able to do this research during this time because, like I said, we started in 2018, but so much transpired, obviously, in 2020 and 2021 that we were able to incorporate some of those learnings in the moment as we were analyzing some of our insights and trying to understand how do people in the church view matters of racial justice? How are they thinking about this moment that we're in? What was their understanding? What were their priorities? Um, so it was just a real privilege to get to work on that and then to be able to share that now with people in ministries and churches um, around the U.S. And, and even around the world. Some of these things can even apply outside of the U.S. Yeah. Well, I'm anxious for you to lay some of that data on us. 
Yes, yes. There's a lot in there. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if there's a particular topic that you want to start with or if you want me to just give you some highlights. Well, yeah, even before you get into it, you know, Brooke, um, you're in Atlanta, Georgia, um, home yeah. and, and pastoring place of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Next week will be the holiday. Um, and one of the things that's uh, so often lost uh, in nowadays conversation, because it's, it's interesting, I think it came up in one of the Christian movies where people were like, we don't want to, a public school didn't want to talk about, you know, faith and religion, but they wanted to talk about Dr. King. And the person had to remind them he was Reverend mm. Dr. King. Yeah. And uh, one of the most, you know, impactful Christians in the last century. Um, and us being here in Minneapolis, we were at that kind of epicenter thing with George Floyd's murder and the like. And so, um, right. but it's also been a, a wonderful opportunity for the church to witness and live out the gospel because the things that you guys are addressing is so much embedded in scripture as a discipleship issue. And mm-hmm. so it was really neat to see Barna, who's had such a heart for the Big C Church on so many different fronts, uh, to pick this up to help you know provide more light where there's been like smoke, um, to provide yeah. more clarity on mm-hmm. things so that we can faithfully be the men and women of Issachar who knew their time and what the church should do in this time. Mm, yeah, no, that's that's a really good point, um, and it's it's very good timing to reflect on this. The uh, yeah, the 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 kind of genesis of all this, if I can use that phrase, is um, we know we know that our churches are relatively divided, and Dr. Martin Luther King was one of the ones who pointed out that eleven o'clock is the most divided hour in this country. You know, at that time. Um, and that really has stuck in, in many Christians' minds of, well, what's behind that? Why is that? Um, and that's one of the things that we wanted to try to dig into further was what's driving that um, disparity or, or separation. And there's just so many factors behind it. So it, it actually, as you said, has been a, an incredible privilege to think about this work and to be even involved in this work um, from Atlanta, where we do have such an incredible history. And Dr. King's legacy is still very active and alive today. Um, Many members of the church rally around these causes and are constantly trying to figure out, you know, how do we live as a more equal society uh, where people actually are all treated as made in the image of God. And so uh, I, I have really come to appreciate even more the um, place that I live in and the place that I grew up in and, and what that has been able to just kind of instill in me and, and teach in me in terms of values. Well, very cool. So do you want to dive into a little bit of this? Because, you know, so often we can have thoughts and even opinions of things. Um, but it's interesting when your work in research um, and like with Michael and Christian, two very astute and very godly sociologists. So when you guys actually yeah. bring your expertise to it in ways that kind of transcend just our subjective thoughts and emotions on it, it's really, really interesting to hear that perspective. So do you want to unpack a little bit of that for us? Yeah, I think that's really important because very often people come at this, this is a personal topic for many people, and they come at it with, I have experienced or I feel. (laughs) And that is very important as one piece of information. But if we don't have the whole picture, especially on issues of race, we likely don't have the whole picture. You know, if we don't take the time to really learn what someone who's different than us has experienced or believes, then we might not come across that 
naturally. We have to kind of seek it out, right, um, because of, of the lack of diversity that exists in our churches. And so um, we started with the foundation of do people even believe that there is a, quote, race problem um, in America? And we wanted to dive into, you know, kind of how much of a, a burden is this, Um and then understand what do they think the, is, is behind the issue? What do they think the issue really is? And so one of the questions we asked them, uh, really even just to get their sense of history, was uh, do you believe that the U.S. has been oppressive to minorities historically? Right. So we started a real big picture about, you know, what's our history show us? Um, and that language was very carefully chosen to represent um, some very specific historical events. And what we see with the answer to that question that we see in many of the questions that we asked was there was a significant uh, disparity in people's perspectives, depending on what racial group that they uh, identify with most. And so uh, what's important about this, this is why you said about, you know, look at the whole picture and, and, and getting to the data. If we just look at an average of all Americans, what happens is the largest group has kind of the loudest voice in that average, right? So what you see is the perspective of white Christians or white adults. Um, and it, I'll just focus on, in on Christians right now. Um, so what we did in this research is, is do a large enough study that we could look at the U.S. as a whole as well as within the church, and we could look at every different uh, racial group within that. And we saw that there was a huge difference in people's perspectives. So um, less than half of white Christians would say, I agree that the U.S. has been historically oppressive to minorities. Um, but three quarters of black practicing Christians would agree with that. And two thirds of Latino practicing Christians would agree with that. So already, even just on your interpretation of history, um, you have a difference of agreement, a difference of opinion. And um, so you, you can see that we're starting from different places and, and different experiences. Right. And that really, uh, I would say that really feeds the urgency around this topic. Um, even the question like that, even looking back at history and saying, like, how much of an issue is this? One thing we heard a lot in our research was well, we did have Dr. King and we did have the civil rights movement and we did change a lot of laws and we did integrate schools and we did get a away uh, from all the Jim Crow laws. So we're we're good now. Right. Um, and that would be the perspective of many white Americans who have not experienced ongoing um, challenges and persecution that, that systemically has existed in the U.S. And, and what we saw is um, kind of the tinderbox get set off um, over the last five to seven years where people were saying, no, we're telling you there's still this isn't resolved. There's still there's still challenges in our systems that are not um, enabling people to live like they are respected and, and have the same opportunities. And um, they don't feel hurt. People of color often don't feel heard by white Christians or white Americans when it comes to the urgency or importance of the topic that affects them very personally. Yeah, I heard an interesting statement by the rapper KB, and he said, you know, in the last several years, I've seen a number of people walk away from Christ, their faith in the church. And almost none of these people of color did it because of Marxism, liberal theology, or things like that, but they, but really did it more so regarding the apathy and hostility of the church towards mm. issues of injustice. 
and the things that were happening to them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to focus specifically on diverse churches. So multi-ethnic, multiracial churches. Um, we did a lot of research where we did focus groups all across the U.S. with people in these different churches, um, both homogenous churches and more um, mixed diverse churches. And one of the things that we heard was what I'll call church hurt, like a unique form of church hurt <laughs> amongst uh, people who were brought into or maybe sought out a uh, diverse church environment, um, who were people of color, and they were trying to be part of the solution, but the way that the church was trying to address diversity was still not allowing their voice to be heard. And so that not only shook their personal um, sense of relationship and connection to the church, but it shook their faith. And it was really hard to see that and to watch them just wrestle with, you know, God, why, why have you brought me here? Um, if, if I'm still not heard and I'm feeling more marginalized than I was, even in, like, if I've come from the black church and now I've come into this diverse church and I feel like I have less connection to you than ever before, um, to see that sort of wrestling of the foundations of their faith was just very hard to stomach, but also really important to be able to share that with Christians, that this was the experience of people mm. in a diverse church. Brooke, why were they not valued? There were a number of things that were kind of key themes tended to be the, the strongest issue. So one is they were not represented in leadership. Um, when, when and I will say not every church has had issues, but those that, that had struggles, um, when there wasn't representation in leadership, when it was like, we have a diverse congregation, but a largely white leadership, then they don't feel that they can be trusted to lead or they don't feel they have the opportunity to lead. So were they and pursuing the, leadership and got denied? Uh, sometimes, or um, they had friends who had done that. Yes. So yeah, sometimes, or sometimes, they had, s- mm-hmm. sometimes they were invited in places of leadership uh, but more so kind of like a token or like, hey, you exactly. know, here, here's a picture face. So example of this, you know, when I started at New Hope Church, one day we were doing a, we were doing a senior staff discussion on, on all, our all people's focus. And I was fairly new at the church. And so this is before everything with George Floyd and all that. And we were doing a panel conversation. And the question was asked, like, do you feel like New Hope Church is like your church or is it just the big white church on a hill that you attend? You know, and a number of people were like, this is my church, this is my church. And I was the last person in the group. And I mean, like, I'd been there for like just a few months. And they said, what about you, PDM? I said, the jury's out. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, the question is, do you want all of me? Meaning, is it okay if I talk about abortion, homosexuality, liberal Democrats, and taxes. But if I happen to mention anything else, then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, no, we really don't want to talk about those things. Like, we're cool mm-hmm. talking. Like, we, we like your rhythms, but we don't want to talk about your blues. Right. Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're cool about talking about, like, oh, that's so soulful and that's really wonderful. But we really don't want to hear that when your uh, son, who's an incredible godly leader, um, you know, was one of two... Um, all academic people, one of 143 student athletes in the nation chose for academics, carrying a 4.0. But when that young man gets in a vehicle, I had to print out a sheet and put his driver's license, my driver's license, his grandfather's driver's license, so that when he was driving his van, that someone didn't mistake him as being one of those black people. And that when 
something happens mm. that people look at his picture and they're like, oh, yeah, well, he must have did something wrong. And so, like, having that conversation without someone feeling like, oh, you know, you know, man, you know, Dave, it's really cool when we talk about all of these things but this. You know, it's mm-hmm. cool if we talk about, you know, liberals, if we, if we talk about, you know, even two years ago, if we talk about a black guy getting up in the Senate and saying a man and a woman in the same Senate chambers— but then a week later when people are carrying flags saying Jesus saves and they're wanting to hang the vice president and people say, well, we can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, wait a minute. Like, mm-hmm. So you, you will find that there's acceptable conversations that is comfortable for dominant culture to listen to. And then there's like the real conversations that people feel. All right, we'll take a short break and be back. Our guest today is Brooke Hempel from the Pinkston Group, which is a division of the Barna Group. So you're listening to the Monday Afternoon Mix. Pastor David Miles is here in studio, and Brooke is on her telephone in Atlanta, Georgia. Be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. I'm back with Pastor David Miles, the Monday afternoon mix. Our guest on our studio line is Brooke Hempel of the Pinkton Group. She did an extensive study on Beyond Diversity and that involved discipleship, evangelism, and opportunities. And so we're glad to have her on the program today. Uh, David, you have a comment yeah. you'd like to make? I wanted to say, you know, like as a, as a chocolate Norwegian from Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, who likes Ludif- not Ludifus, but Lefsa, um, you know, one of the things about having conversations like this, um, you know, people can feel like, man, you know, it just feels like, you know, you're bringing this up and it seems like such a, you know, a negative, and it seems it's such a victim-like type of mentality, you know? And I have a saying that I say to people that our fanciful and subjective feelings do not bear underneath the weight of recorded history and demonstrable fact. And Brooke, when, when I was talking to Brooke the other day, um, in our society, there have been three great caste systems. India, which I was at back in April, Nazi Germany, and the third one, was the United States, where on June 5th, 1934, 17 legal bureaucrats gathered in Nuremberg and they formulated what I knew about before the Nuremberg trials, but they formulated the Nuremberg blood, flag, and citizenship laws, where Reich Counselor um, Franz Gutner opens up the meeting and he says, regarding the Jewish issue, the Jewish problem that we have, our first question is, how did the Americans do it? And after our 50, 60-year study of our country, of multiple groups, they looked at how we had anti-miscegenation and how our laws were. And they utilized those laws in the formation of what become the blood flag and citizenship. Now, that doesn't separate the fact that the Nazis were bad. They were going to do what they were going to do. But as James Q. Whitman, who lost 11 family members in the Holocaust in his book, Hitler's uh, American model notes, 
as as difficult as it is, you know, because when we think of Hitler and the Nazis, we think a true Nathandom, an ultimate abyss of evil. They weren't just mildly like, this is kind of cool. They they really saw and they took inspiration from, except on a couple things. Um, they noted that they could not do the one drop rule, where if you had one drop of black blood, that made you black. And they found that they didn't advertise Auschwitz, whereas we would advertise the torture, mutilation, burning at the stake, and lynching of people of colors and Nazis and German people. Um, they didn't do that. And um, so when people feel like you're talking about this and it seems so kind of victim mentality, my question often is, when you've heard Schindler's List or like me, when you sat in the apartment in Skokie, Illinois with Holocaust survivors, when's the last time you've said to one of those Ashkenazi uh, Jewish people, man, this seems very victim mentality. And if you've never done that, my second question is, when in the future do you plan to do that? And if you're not going to do that, my question comes back to a biblical question. Then why are you looking at me as a fellow image bearer made in the image of God and asking that question? And so the difficult thing about Brooks' research is that it gets beyond our subjective feelings and it actually gets into actual sociological data that, that deeply looks into this issue in ways that goes beyond fanciful imaginations of I think and I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I actually think that's a, a good example bringing up how we think about our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, because one of the analogies I uh, picked up from one of the, the, we also interviewed a number of leaders, about a hundred something leaders who've been doing this, you know, diverse integrated church movement for many years. Um, and one of them said, you know, we are all about discipleship when it comes to our marriages. Like we will study and we will work on it and we will apologize and we will go through counseling <laughs> Um, you know, we'll do all the hard things because we believe that marriage is something really important that God values and we want to work on ourselves for the good of marriages as a whole. But when it comes to issues like this that that people put into the bucket of politics, um, there isn't that desire to pursue a healthy relationship with another human being, with another person made in the image of God, and, and including one that's sitting there in your church. Um, that's not to say that, that there isn't any desire. It's just that we're not as patient with it as we are with the whole concept of um, discipleship on relationships of marriage, right? And so if we think of it about how are we growing, if we turn that question to how are we growing, how are we examining our own hearts and using this as a lens to understand, you know, what is it that's bothering me about this, right? Um, it actually can really uncover some beautiful opportunities for us to grow in our faith. And I personally, and my whole team is, as a fact, um, grew through this, this research tremendously. We were challenged in a lot of ways. Uh, we actually had a diverse team, and we, we struggled through a lot of things. <laughs> um, you know, we just came at things in a different way, and we had to work through those. And it was beautiful on the other side to see that that wasn't easy, 
but it was so worth it. And we have so much of a deeper, richer appreciation and understanding, um, having been patient through it and having um, kind of borne each other's burdens through a really tough time that we were all really blessed by the opportunity, but that also was really hard. You know, one of the statements that Pastor Rich Velotas of New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York, said that our levels of of offendability when it comes to topics about race often reveal the levels of our maturity. You know, mm-hmm. because this is something where we're having to die to self. Now, mm-hmm. that aside, as a person of color, I cannot tell you that one of the greatest witnesses in my life is when non-believers and atheists and agnostics talk to me about race because the witness of the church of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, it is so profound because there's nothing like it because it's Mm -hmm. truly at the heart of the gospel when you actually look at scripture. And so, um, I, it's, this is what it is, is it's a wonderful opportunity for us to step into places that only Christians that are filled with Christ and transformed by Christ can do. And so it's a wonderful opportunity. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to see a generation of leaders that, like, I work with who are kind of ready to be, like, done with things because they're trying to figure out, does the church have something to say about this? Brooke, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm glad that David was able to spend some time with you and your hubby and kids and dog yesterday in Atlanta. It's been uh, nice having you on. Thank you so much. You bet. That wraps up the Monday Afternoon Mix. After a short break, we're going to spend an hour with Dr. Mark Muska. That segment is called Ask the Professor. Get your questions ready and the professor will answer them. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.